And I always thought that was really fascinating because here's some guys who are basically getting resupplied once a year, maybe, and then sometimes not if they miss rendezvous. Listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. How's it going, everybody? It's Darren with Muzzleloaders.com, and you are watching uh, and listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast. We have Paul from the Orion Foundation Instagram page, and Paul's been involved in muzzleloading for a long time, and he has a pretty good following on Instagram, and has really been spreading the good news about uh, black powder, how much fun it is, rendezvous. Um, all that kind of stuff, and I actually was able to have a good conversation with Paul here about a week ago, and kind of just get a little bit of the uh, you know precursor to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but I'm excited to have Paul introduce himself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paul. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's hear about your origin story. So I heard some of it when uh, you and I chatted last week. Uh, let's go ahead and just kind of rehash a lot of that for our listeners today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was uh, fortunate enough to have kind of grown up in, I would say, kind of the the end of the big black powder, uh, black powder revolution that kind of happened in the 70s and in early 80s. Um, you know, my uh, dad was really into black powder rifles, uh, shooting. Um, I, I remember as a kid going on hunts where there was only black powder shooters there. And um talking to my dad about it, a lot of that kind of came out about because of kind of the culture at the time. Uh, we just had, you know, in the mid seventies, there was the, the bicentennial, uh, Jeremiah Johnson, you know, it was a very popular movie that kind of influenced a lot of people and a lot of, um, you know, my dad and the people that were his, uh, kind of in his milieu were people who grew up watching Davy Crockett and that kind of stuff. Mm. And so, um, I remember, uh, when I was probably about three or four, I went on a hunting trip and that was the, uh, first time I ever shot a black powder, black powder gun. It was a black powder pistol, the, uh, Philadelphia Derringer that, um, we all know and love that yeah. CVA imported in the seventies. And, uh, so you hunted, that, you uh, hunted that, with the Derringer? No, no, no. Like we were just shooting like, oh. and, you know, like basically <laughs> there was the hunt that was going on. Yeah. That would have been pretty remarkable. I was going to say, I got, um, I have to hear that story. That's, yeah. That's and, I, and, and in fact, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody hit anything with one of those. So that, <laughs> that actually may be something for the record books, but yeah, um, yeah it was, you know, the first kind of camp I really vividly remember. I remember, you know, shooting black powder guns and growing up, that's what we did. We shot a lot of black powder guns, both with my dad and my grandfather. So I was involved at a, at a, at a pretty young age. Nice. And so muzzleloader hunting is something that I'm passionate about. And, um, I mean, I guess in the, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I'm pretty new to muzzleloading. Uh, I've been muzzleloading since I was like 14, which that's only been like, you know, nine years, I suppose. Um, whereas you and I were talking about last time, there's some people that are just in the you know, in the old guard, like that have been muzzleloading for decades and decades. Absolutely. Um, and so muzzleloader hunting is something. And so I guess, um, actually, hold on a second. I want to, I want to backtrack a little bit because, uh, you sure. had said that you, you didn't attend rendezvous as much growing up. Um, but that hunting was kind of the main focus 
of your like black powder passions in your childhood? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, as a kid, we did a lot of black powder hunting. We did a lot, a lot of black powder shooting. Um, I remember, you know, going to the range and a lot of, a lot of the stuff we shot at the time would have been kind of the more popular guns of that era. You know, a lot of Thompson center Hawkins, CVA rifles. Um, my dad was really into, um, civil war era guns. Mm -hmm. So we shot a lot of those, a lot of those type of replicas. Uh, we, we didn't do a lot of, um, we, we definitely went camping, but we didn't do any like rendezvous style camping. And in fact, mm -hmm. now, you know, now that I'm looking back on it, my dad, I remember my dad telling me as a kid about, um, he had a friend of his who, who lived in a teepee. And I'm sure that was probably my, my little kid reminiscing, reminiscing of him describing people that went to rendezvous mm -hmm. at the time. And, um, so when I, you know, grew up shooting black powder guns, was really into that. Uh, when I got into middle school, like a lot of people, I really wanted to shoot, you know, more, you know, semi-automatics, those kind of fun guns, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. We also shot a lot of military surplus guns growing up. And um, it wasn't until college that I started kind of getting that nostalgia for the guns I shot when I was, when I was younger mm -hmm. and really kind of started looking into that. And um, there was a, uh, a bookstore that was kind of on the edge of the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, that that had a lot of had a really neat kind of self-sufficiency survival section that ended up having quite a few black powder books and that's where i read uh the book of buckskinning i got that there book of buckskinning one uh buckskins and black powder and some of those other kind of earlier books that really describe like the mountain man aspect of the hobby and so at, at that point um it was a lot of nostalgia for what i did when i was younger um, you know, always been a camper, always been an outdoors guy. And so it wasn't until like late college that I really got into, uh, that aspect of the black powder hobby. So really kind of searching out the, um, uh, the rendezvous and the mountain man stuff and, and really getting into that and kind of jumping into that. Awesome. And so, uh, I, I have a, a direction I want to go and talk about a lot of the, um, wilderness, the medical, like all of that kind of like bushcraft type stuff that you, uh, that you're into. But while we're on the subject, I kind of have to know the, uh, the origins behind your style of content on Instagram, because it's very unique in that it combines, uh, like a lot of military surplus with like black powder stuff. And so, um, how did that come about and how was that birthed, uh, like the beginnings of your Instagram channel or, or page? Sure. Sure. Oh, I, oh, absolutely. Well, um, you know, as you, as you know, anyone who looks at the page knows I'm definitely a, you know, what we all call a gear nerd, right? Mm -hmm. I've always liked uh, equipment, um, you know, camping equipment, military surplus stuff. Uh, like I mentioned, you know, we saw it, we shot a lot of uh, military surplus rifles and it wasn't just the military surplus rifles. It was, you got to get the right bayonet to go with it. Mm -hmm. You got to get the right gear, the right web gear. Fully kitted um, out. And fully kitted out, right? And so my dad and I always had a joke that, you know, you'd spend a hundred dollars on a surplus rifle and five hundred dollars on all the, you know, the stuff you needed to, <laughs> to to make it work and to make it right. And so, um, yeah. So as a kid, you know, I, I used a lot of uh, uh, surplus British military stuff. You know, of course, like when I was a kid, there was a lot of the Vietnam era stuff with surplus, and mm -hmm. so we'd run around the neighborhoods, you know, with a uh, pattern fifty or a uh, uh, pattern fifty six um, or uh, uh, sixty seven. Uh, military gear because that was something you could get at the surplus stores really cheap mm -hmm. and um it's always been always been a big fan of that stuff uh i'm also um involved with a lot of you know some different buckskinning groups and that kind of thing well 
one of the ha- one of the the habits I would always have is I'd be out, you know, traveling. My wife and I love going on road trips and you know going to little festivals and stuff. And anytime I see somebody with a cool backpack or a cool piece of gear, I'd always walk up and talk to them about it. And it always made my wife embarrassed. She's like, "Oh man, I can't believe you're, you know, you guys you're you're talking to some stranger or whatever." Yeah. But but most of those people are gear enthusiasts too, totally. so they're excited and they want to talk about it. And I started taking pictures of it just as a way for me to kind of catalog, Hey, here's some cool stuff that I found. And so, um, that's kind of how my Instagram started off was just me like, Hey, here's a cool, you know, backpack I saw. Here's some cool equipment that I saw. And, and I really started thinking like, how, you know, I want to do, I want to do more, you know, black powder stuff because, um, you know, I want to do what I can to kind of, kind of help that hobby. Uh, uh, Ethan did a, a, a positive uh, podcast when he was with the NMLRA that was with the GoX people and I think it was Deer Creek muzzleloading and they were talking about like doing what you can to make, mm-hmm. to help the hobby and to help the hobby. And I really kind of, really kind of took that to heart and I thought, okay, well, what's my part in this? And so I, I, so I took all these things that I was already kind of interested in, you know, backpacks, gear, black powder stuff. And one of the hesitations I had with the black powder stuff was like, where do I fit in that? Cause I, I belong to the American mountain man, which is a pretty, you know, serious historical group. I've done a lot of like historical reenacting stuff. And I thought, well, I don't necessarily want to publish anything that's like super historical because if I get something wrong, then that could be distracting mm-hmm. or people would focus on that instead of the gear. And I thought, you know, what if I just went crazy with this and posted like, you know, Vietnam era gear, but put a blunderbuss in there or, you know, Alice gear with a Zouave rifle or, sure. you know, a brown vest with, um, you know, British, British gear from Borneo or from the the sixties. Mm-hmm. And so I started kind of this weird mashup of things that were almost to me, um, kind, kind of satire and kind of absurdist because it was something where somebody who was, who was a real hit, you know, real history snob would, would see that and go, Hey, wait a minute. You know, that's not the right rifle for, you know, Alge- French Algeria but they would recognize, Hey, that's kind of funny because the mm-hmm. gear is right, but the gun's wrong. Or yeah. you know, now you're showing a, you know, a blunderbuss with a nineties tactical vest. And, and what I, what I've realized with that is it's been, it's been such a fun thing to kind of, to kind of have that mashup and show that and show those, those different pieces of gear together. And of all the stuff I've published, that's, that's really been the one thing that people have been most drawn to. But what that's allowed me to do was kind of broached that muzzleloader hobby with a lot of the people who may otherwise have been, well, I don't want to do it because y'all are too serious, you yeah. know, on the historical side, or it seems like it would be too hard. And it really kind of allowed that, that conversation. And I, and I can't even tell you all the different people who've reached out to me and said, Hey, this is really cool. I've never, I've never tried muzzleloading before, you know, what, how should I get started or what should I try? Or I heard I have to have a custom rifle. What, you know, what about this? And so really kind of, that was kind of the genesis of it. And it's mm-hmm. really kind of taken on a life of its own. And I've, I've just met so many great people through uh, Instagram who are what I, what I always term fellow enthusiasts, you know, yeah. people who like the gear, like the guns. And then it's been great just posting stuff back and forth and sharing ideas and everything. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that muzzleloading, so I, I also love gear and I oftentimes I like the gear sometimes even more than the hobby itself. And so it's like, I find a hobby where, okay, this is a hobby where I can have a lot of things. And so then I kind of dive into it. So like hunting is Absolutely. very much that way. Um, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of my other hobbies and muzzleloading is especially that way. I mean, you can, 
go totally into the weeds. And uh, one of my favorite things that I get to do here is uh, actually like a little bit of like um, product development, not a huge amount of it, but I get to participate in it because I'm just out at the range all the time Absolutely. shooting the stuff. And so it's like, man, I really wish that I had this tool. And then it's like, okay, well yeah. now let's make that tool. And um, you know, so I love, I love that about muzzle loading and along what you're saying too about um, it being too serious. I think that is a big intimidation factor, just like the barrier to entry for any hobby. Um, it, it can be yes. kind of intimidating, but muzzle loading, especially because I think for some reason in people's minds, they assume that uh, when you get into muzzle loading, you have to go full bore into it and you have to have all the buckskins, all the clothing, all the accoutrement. And, um, where there, there are some associations like the one that you're a part of that they kind of, they kind of have a little bit of higher barrier to entry. You don't have to start there. Um, there's so many places like, like our local rendezvous here. There's several of them around here in Eastern Oregon and they all encourage historical accuracy, but it's by no means a requirement. And everybody there is just so in, in, uh, enthralled, enthralled, whatever that word is. They're all very very excited, you know, to get new people involved. And I think it's really important. And like what you're saying about Ethan and uh, I think what your Instagram page and and what our content strives to do is to reduce some of that barrier to entry into muzzle loading because um, without getting more people in, the things that we love, the things we're passionate about are just going to die off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think the barrier to entry is a great point, right? I mean, it's like if you – I did a, a reenactment about a month ago at Goliath, which is a, an old Spanish fort that's um, southeast of where I live. And it's, it's one of those things where I'd, I'd, never, I'd never been to that kind of an event. And the people there were so, oh, here, you know, oh, you know, you're, um, you're, you want to be on the Texan side here, borrow this gear. Or mm-hmm. you want to be a Mexican soldado, borrow this gear. And, and I think that that type of attitude is what's going to help propagate those type of events and 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 really you know it's whether it's you know muzzleloading or golf or you know rock climbing or whatever it is it's it's a pretty it's a pretty stiff hill to climb to tell somebody hey you can do this with me but you need to spend five thousand dollars on you know a rifle and all the right accoutrement mm-hmm. and you know brain, brain tan buckskins and then come out and see if you like it um and i take and i take more of the approach of hey let's try this out yeah. What's the way you can try this out and get you interested in it and then see where that leads you. And for some people, you know, for me, it led me to the American mountain men and, and that group and the stuff that we do there. But for other people, it may be, you know, doing shoots every month, you know, and yeah. getting involved in a local shooting group. But all of that strengthens the hobby and, you know, and, and that those people and keeping those people interested is really what we need to, to keep things going and to bring it to the next generation. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, uh, you know, just finding what you can do and starting there. And that's something I've always strived to do. Um, whether, whether if it's something I'm interested in, um, like for instance, mountain biking is, is kind of the newest thing. And, uh, you know, just, if you've done any research on mountain biking, you can go like a, you go a million miles into mountain biking, literally. Um, but I'm like, okay, well I don't want to just buy like a a $7,000 bike and then hate it. And then I'm stuck with, you know, it's like, I'm going to start with what I can do. And then if I love it, then I'll pursue this passion. If I hate it, then it's like, oh, I got, you know, I got a cheap bike yeah, to hang on absolutely. to for a while, you know? So, um, that's what I really, yeah, encourage. no, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I encourage people to do that with muzzle loading too. Just, you know, start with what you can do, you know, and, and it, there will always be naysayers, but don't, 
don't take what the naysayers have to say to heart because, um, well, one, they, they probably shouldn't be mean to you. And two, uh, the, you know, there's so many more people that are going to be encouraging and helpful, especially in our sport than they're going to be naysayers. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know. I know like one of the things for us is, um, we live out on some acreage, so we're lucky enough to uh, blessed to have our own uh, shooting range that we shoot at. Oh, nice! And That's my one dream. Of the things That's a that lifelong we, dream. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it, it, it's been my dream my whole life. Oh, I, I, uh, I, for sure. Um, but one of the things we started doing is whenever we have uh, family barbecues. That's what we've all started doing is shooting black powder guns together, and that's and that's been a lot of fun because it's been something where, you know, I have some, you know, on the extreme example, I have some relatives that are not exactly pro gun, mm-hmm. I would say, and that's been an opportunity to introduce them into that and, you know, in a safe environment, check it out and get to do that. And that is an experience and an opportunity that they may not have otherwise have had. And, and that's been that's been a lot of fun as well, too. Nice. That's awesome. Um. So another thing that I kind of want to talk about is, is the bushcraft side of things. Um, because sure. there's a lot of parallel hobbies to muzzleloading where it's like a lot of time if you're into muzzleloading, then you're probably into throwing hawk and knife and you're probably into like some of these other things. And I think bushcraft is one of those parallel hobbies that a lot of our listeners are probably at least interested in, if not already involved. And so I want to talk about how you got involved in that. And then some of the ways that maybe our listeners can start to get involved in that, uh, if they're not already. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, and that's a great, like, that's a great topic too, because I think bushcrafting is interesting because it, it can mean different things to different people, you know? So for example, uh, going back to that, that, uh, that early camp out I was describing with my dad and his friends. Well, at that camp out, you know, my dad was showing, you know, he was demonstrating how to make a fire with flint and steel. He was using, um, he showed me how to sharpen a spear and fire harden it and all this kind of thing. And there's so many things from that event that kind of like set the pace for the rest of my life, I would say. And so one of the things that um, I was always in my group growing up, I was kind of always like the, the lead camper, I would say. And so, you know, always take my friends camping. I'd be the one that would, you know, set the tent up, do the stuff. And we did a lot of what, what we just called, we just called it skills work, where we would bring the old uh, Army Survival Manual. Um, one of the first books, I, I think I probably got it when I was like nine or 10, was the, um, the SAS Survival Manual. Mm. It was John Wiseman's book. And it, it had these like great pen and ink drawings of like, you know, figure four traps and, how to set up snares and do that. And so what we would do is we would go out in the woods and we would, um, we would, you know, work on setting up traps. We would make debris huts, you know, make shelters. Uh, we would, you know, throw knives and, you know, shoot bows and arrows and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And at that, and at the time it was just kind of, we're just doing, we would just call it working on skills in the woods. And, you know, I had a group of friends that I did this with and it probably wasn't until I read, there was this great book, um, I'm sure it's out of print, but it's called Sleep Close to the Fire. Mm. And it was a book written by uh, one of the authors. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was somebody who used to write for this magazine called Wilderness Way. And Wilderness Way was like kind of the bushcraft magazine before it was called Bushcraft. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember looking those up and thinking, oh my gosh, this is so neat. This is like, this is people doing skills, you know, the stuff yeah. that, you know, that I, that we used to work on or whatever. And so I would say that's kind of what, that's kind of what, what got me started in it. 
And then from there, it just became kind of almost like parallel to my muzzleloader experience where I just desired to try to like do more with less and mm-hmm. to try to, you know, Hey, if it's, and, and a lot of that was out of the pure practicality of the more stuff I can do, the less crap I have to carry. So I've always been, you know, a backpacker and that kind of thing. Um, really got into lightweight backpacking in, in high school and college. I was a backpacking guy at UT. And one of the things um, that uh, really changed when I got into the mountain man hobby was you can really pare down a, um, like an ultralight sleeping bag, but a wool blanket is the wool blanket. You can only, you know, smash that so many ways. Mm-hmm. And so where bushcrafting really kind of fit the bill was to bridge that gap between gear and, and knowledge and skills. And so we try to do things where, you know, we're using less gear, we're making something in nature, you know, maybe uh, instead of bringing a tent, you bring a tarp and you're building a shelter out of a tarp. And then maybe instead of a tarp, you're just bringing a poncho mm. and you're only sleeping on it instead of, um, you know, making sure you have a full tent over you or whatever. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what, um, what started me down that path, I would say, was really just trying to perfect my, my wood skills and getting more into, you know, getting better at things. And then you see what other people are doing. You get inspired by them. You post what you're doing that inspires other people and just kind of keeping it going like that. So one of the things about bushcraft that I've always found is that, um, you know, reading and YouTube and just getting out there and doing it are, you know, the, the best ways that I've found, but are there any like national associations or sort of like rendezvous where there's clubs all over the place? Um, like if somebody wanted to get plugged into a community with regard to bushcraft, like how would they, how would they find that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. You know, um, so what, what I've done and the way I, the way I've kind of worked through that is, um, I've, I've through, you know, through like something like Instagram reached out to people who I think are in my area. You know, I've had, I've had a couple of people reach out to me who I've posted something and they say, Hey, I, I recognize those trees. Are you in central Texas or, or, Oh, I know that area. I live, I live down the street from there and just kind of reaching out to those folks and saying, you know, and starting to like, uh, you know, bring people out to events or try to invite people over. You know, I know that there's a, um, there's a, you know, Bushcraft USA has a big forum that, mm-hmm. you know, that some people use to connect and that kind of thing. As far as like national events go, um, you know, one of the big ones, the rabbit stick rendezvous, I've never gone to that, but a buddy of mine went to this last one. And so they do have kind of national events for that. But, um, you know, I, w- I would say a lot of, a lot of what I've done is more in my area mm-hmm. and then definitely trying to reach out to people who, um, who are in my area and who have common interests and just kind of, you know, working to try to build community that way. Um, you know, so I have a, I have a pretty good list of people who I've met over the years who anytime I host a camp out or host some kind of event that I send it out to them and basically say, Hey, we're, you know, we're planning an event this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully you can make it out and you really use those kind of tools to create community and find those people around you because there's all kinds of people who I've met online and have, you know, and I, I'd say I've definitely, you know, made, uh, made friends with them and, uh, and, and, you know, kind of really hit it off with them in a way that, that is that, that, you know, I'm bouncing stuff off of them or ask some ideas and, but they're in different places. And, and it's one of those things like, you know, some, you know, people are in Indiana, people are in California, you know, you're in Oregon. And so, um, that's great, but it's also important to find that community of people who are near you 
because those are the people you're going to be able to get out, get on the ground more and, and get out into the woods more often than uh, people who are in, you know, or in other further locations. Sure. Yeah. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, and let's talk about uh, muzzleloaders more specifically. So sure. uh, of all like rendezvous, all that kind of stuff, um, do you tend to favor just more traditional or have you done anything with inlines? What's your thoughts on inlines? Like kind sure. of the more muzzle sure, philosophy sure. stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, I'm definitely more on the traditional side, I would say. Uh, I, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I see the utility of inlines. I almost see those as more of kind of hunting guns because I know a lot of, a lot of places have, um, extended seasons where, you know, an inline may be there to like kind of, you know, bridge the gap for somebody who's maybe more used to like a, like a standard rifle. So I know a lot of those features are, are really, really similar. Um, for me, one of the things that really brought me into this hobby or kind of brought me back into it is the his, the history of it and the historical aspect of it. And so I've almost taken what I would call kind of a, a 180 from that where um, I'm really interested in, you know, I think I've, I think I first heard the term coined as experimental archaeology and it's basically this idea of like trying to do a thing that people did in the past with the tools that they had access to Mm -hmm. uh that's what really kind of got me um into really uh refining what i do with regards to like buck skinning and and mountain man stuff and that kind of thing and um so for me uh i've always been kind of firmly rooted in the past Mm -hmm. with regards to muzzleloaders and so like for example um you know, because I'm, I'm in Texas, I'm involved in Texas rev events or Texas revolution events. And so, um, for that, uh, there's, there's a certain set of black powder guns that I use for that, you know, Brown best musket is something that, a you know, Mexican army soldado would have had access to, uh, the, uh, uh, your average like Texan, uh, farmer guy would have had, you know, a flintlock right long rifle if he even had a gun at all. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, a lot of time, a lot of uh, U.S. Army guns made their way down into uh, Texas at that time. So, you know, your Springfield uh, Model 1816 would have been something that a soldier of that time would have carried. And so, um, you know, so that would be an example of like when I'm when I'm emulating that time period, I'm working within that time period. I'm I'm trying to use those type of those type of weapons, and because of the the historical aspect of it. Um, that's really what's kind of kept me with like the older style stuff, but I never shot flintlocks until I was probably, I mean, I know, I know my dad had one growing up, but it really wasn't until like college mm-hmm. that I really started getting into flintlocks and that kind of thing. Interesting. And, uh, along for me, I, I want to close up the, this whole discussion. I have like another branch to go off on, but, um, sure. I think that for me in lines, I, cause I shoot pretty much anything that shoots black powder is kind of, that's kind of where I like to go. So, um, like for instance, tomorrow I'm going to the range with, you know, uh, an inline and then this, you know, I'm going to probably, I'm going to end up deer hunting with a traditional, I think I'm going to use a flintlock. I can't decide if I'm going to go flintlock for when he's percussion, but either way, cool. um, just kind of like if it, if it shoots black powder, then that's, uh, it's fun for me. But yeah, um, I think barrier to entry is reduced by inlines because it just, my own trajectory in muzzle loading started off with inlines. And then as I've kind of used inlines, it's like, oh, I kind of want to increase my challenge and increase my knowledge and diversity. And so then that naturally has led into a lot of interest in the rendezvous scene, um, traditional hunting and that sort of thing. And so 
I think inlines are a good way of like sort of reducing that because people, a lot of people that would never touch, you know, a flintlock, they would have no problem picking up, you know, an inline of some kind because it's a, there's something they're a little more familiar with and it kind of gets their toe dipped in the water. You know, is that, does sure, that, make, that sense? makes sense? Yeah. And that's yeah. Kind, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of always been my, my philosophy on that. Um, but then kind of back to what you were saying, um, you seem to have a lot of knowledge on the history into things. What is your, and I actually made a post about this on, um, on Instagram. I think it was, I don't know. It's so many social media platforms out there. I can't hardly keep them all straight, but, um, I think it was Instagram. Just what, what was your favorite part of muzzleloader history? And I kind of want to know what your favorite part is, um, of all of the stuff that you have rolling around in your head there. Sure. Wow. That's a, that is a. That's a tough question, it I would was. say, especially that was. for somebody like me, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm such a, I'm such a history nerd. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I was this weekend. I was at a pack-in with some of my AMM brothers, uh-huh. and I was actually talking to them about how I really want to get a match lock so I can go back to the 1600s. You know, because mm-hmm. um, I kind of I can I can only go back as far as like the 1740s with with um the stuff that I do. But um, I would say if I if I, you know. Picking a time period is difficult because there's different things I like about different time periods. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, my my first love was probably Texas history because I grew up in Texas, was enamored by the Alamo. Like every kid who grew up in that area, I wanted to be Davy Crockett. And so that was something that, you know, that that's probably like I remember playing Davy Crockett as a kid and I had one of those Paris replica black powder yeah. long rifle things, you know, and I was you know, shooting off the parapet of the Alamo or whatever. And so, and so Texas history was very natural for me in that, in that regard. Um, so I've been very interested in that, uh, you know, the mountain man times I think are, are fascinating just because if you think about the, you know, the survival factor of here are these guys who are living kind of on their own hook in the middle of nowhere in hostile territory, mm-hmm. um, basically living off the land, and, you know, from a, from like a survival perspective, that always really appealed to me. And I always thought that was really fascinating because here's some guys who are basically getting resupplied once a year, maybe, and then sometimes not if they miss rendezvous. And, uh, and then again, you know, and so that's, so that's been a period I've always been really, really fascinated with. And then, you know, the long hunter time too, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, especially like in the Ohio river Valley and Kentucky and, you know, Indiana and that area that's a really interesting history that I really got uh, into a few years ago and hadn't, hadn't really read a lot on that subject. Um, and, uh, you know, from my own, my own heritage, I have a lot of French ancestry mm-hmm. that's been in North America, like since I think like the 1600s. Okay. And, and if you get into like kind of the French and Indian wartime and before that, that's a really fascinating time mm-hmm. as well too. Um, if I had to pick one, I would probably say the mountain man era. Is yeah. probably my favorite, um, and there was so many, you know, innovations and changes that happened at that time. Percussion caps, you know, came out, started really getting on the scene in the uh, early 1820s. You started seeing like the early Colt revolvers towards the end of the 1830s. Um, so yeah, if I had to pick one, I would say that. But but really, you know, probably 1700s to 1900 are really kind of the, the time period I've really kind of keyed in on with regard to muzzleloaders. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there. And I think one of the cool things I've always found about that era is that you have so much, uh, you have so many like just really fascinating characters. And I'm a huge fan of just like character driven stories. 
And so you have like oh Jeremiah gosh, Johnson, you know, Hugh Glass, like, um, yeah. you know, Jim Bridger. You have like these names that are legendary in nature. And then some of what they did is, is like absolutely incredible, but then also some of it's kind of legend. And so you just have this, this interesting mix yeah. of, of stories mixed with history um, with oh, all of those characters. And I just think that's fascinating stuff. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, I've read uh, a lot of mountain man journals. Um, not, not all of them by, by a long shot, but I've definitely read a lot of that. And then kind of, kind of the, some of the more like anthologies and, uh, you know, you can get caught up in kind of like the factual reality of the situation. Like what did this guy really do? What really happened? Mm-hmm. And then you can read a book like a uh, crow killer. It's about, you know, Jeremiah Johnson or Liver Eaton Johnson, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, the introduction to that book says, Hey, we're not really sure how much of this is true. So read it with a grain of salt. And by the way, it's from a time period where, you know, culture was terrible. So don't like it too much, but that's literally one of the coolest books I've ever read, you yeah. know, because it's yeah. so fantastic. And it's like, and it's almost like you, you read these and it's like, yeah, it's the, you know, I always, I always say like, if you have a choice between the legend and the reality, I always take the legend because yeah, yeah. it's just more fun. <laughs> totally. A hundred percent. Liver eating Johnson was an interesting one because until very recently, I didn't realize that liver eating Johnson and Jeremiah Johnson were the same guy. Uh, I was like, I, cause I thought they were two separate and the, the whole thing around like liver eating Johnson, I thought was very interesting because it sounded like there's from what I was reading, there's not a whole lot of people that are very certain about, what the reality of that really was, you know? Um, yeah. and oh, absolutely. I, it's been forever since I've read on that. I mean, it's, it's been well over, you know, a couple of years since I've read about liberating Johnson, but, uh, definitely yeah, an interesting story. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think Jeremiah Johnson, the movie was based on uh, the book called mountain man by Bartis Fisher, mm-hmm. which, which if you, it's, it has a lot of like very historically based in it, but it's very romanticized kind of the, and it's almost like, almost like romanticized to kind of like the Victorian level where you're like, mm, this is probably not what this guy was thinking. <laughs> um, and then on the other hand, you have the other book that it was based on, which is Crow Killer. And so you can read those and say, okay, yeah, I can see how they extrapolated the movie from this, but they're both kind of like these two extremes, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. That's, and that's just a fascinating time of American history. Cause it's new. You have the frontier and nowadays, and it's like, also, I think there's something uh, in every person, especially today in our society, I think we get bored really easy because for the most part, people live their lives without adventure. And I think that, uh, there's yeah. something in each person that, that desires adventure in, in some way or another desires the unknown and, and to do something they haven't done before. And so I think that is another reason why that time period really inspires imagination because people were going where, they, where almost no one had been before and they're traveling and exploring and, and surveying and all these things that um that we just don't really have the the access to with modern technology because for the most part a lot of things have been explored and if you want to see something truly untouched and brand new um you know you really have to go you know to south america you know like some of these very far off places to experience that yeah yeah no absolutely i mean in fact if you look at like uh, you know, John Coulter, who was one of the hunters in the Lewis and Clark Brigade in the Corps of Discovery, um, he did a lot of exploring on his own. And there was this time um, generally referred to as like Coulter's Walk when he went on this 500-mile foot journey, just kind of walking around through what we would call like the Yellowstone area now. 
<clears throat> and he saw all the things that are the Yellowstone Park. Mm. And when he came back and described it, no, nobody believed him. They, uh, they called it Coulter's Hell, kind of making fun of him because they're mm. like, there's not a place where sulfur bubbles out of the ground and, you know, water gets shot up in the air and everything. And it wasn't until decades later that somebody actually uh, figured out that was a real place. Absolutely fascinating stuff. But, um, so what is your favorite muzzleloader? Um, are you, prefer, you know, the Hawken, the long, you know, uh, uh, Kentucky rifle? What, what is it? Um, so I would say uh, it's, hard, it's hard to pick, right, because there's so many that are cool. Yeah. But really when it comes down to it, um, I would say uh, the Northwest trade gun is probably my favorite. Uh, that's the old school flintlock smoothbore. Usually it's like 58 to 62 caliber. Um, they are a uh, trade gun in that they were a gun that was traded to the Indians during the fur trade. Um, probably from, uh, for most of the fur trade, you know, 1700s up until I think like 1900 was the last time period when Hudson Bay was actually still trading off some of these, some of these uh, muskets. By then, they were percussion, though, so that's definitely a difference. Hmm. But, um, yeah, I've always really been drawn to Northwest trade guns. They're the ones that have the serpent side lock and, you know, just really, really kind of iconic uh, weapon of that time period. And uh, I think my fascination with those probably started off with um, an article I read in Backwoodsman Magazine when I was uh, kind of re-getting into black powder when I was in college. I found a copy of Backwoodsman Magazine. I thought mm. this was just like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And somebody had written an article that was basically describing how uh, a, a smoothbore flintlock was the perfect survival weapon. And it wasn't talking about like a combat weapon, but just like a weapon for like living off the land. Yeah. And I thought that was the coolest thing I ever read. I had to get a Northwest trade gun. Um, there wasn't a lot of stuff on the internet back then. Mm. Uh, this probably would have been two thousand ish and you know couldn't really source one took me a long time looking around and i remember i was um my dad and i uh do a lot of traveling gun shows we'll, we'll travel around and check out different gun shows you know around the state around the country and i'd gone to a um a gun show in dallas and and got and somebody had on their rack a northwest trade gun and that was the first one I'd ever seen in person. I about, you know, fell off my feet. It didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't matter what it cost. I had to have it. I mean, yeah. it was one of those, like, you know, the, the ultimate impulse buy. But um, I've always loved those. Uh, even today, you know, when I do, when I do pack-ins, uh, that kind of thing, I usually always bring a trade gun. And I've always, I've always loved them and been enamored by them. And I've always, uh, I really like uh, the tack look, you know, when people tack up their, trade guns with you know tacks and different designs and, you know crosses and that kind of stuff and and that's that that i would say is probably um my favorite of all of them if i had to pick and then i really like brown vestas a lot too um probably for similar reasons you know it's such a that that is an iconic weapon that has been a part of you know the french and indian war the colonial war texas revolution I think uh, there were, I don't know that a brown vest was used, but for sure there were some other flintlock muskets that were used in the early stages of the Civil War in the South. Mm. And they're just, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating. If you think about that 
that musket was used for over a hundred years. I mean, with variations with different models, of course, but just, uh, when, when you think about, you know, England conquering the world or the English, British empire, that's what it was with, was with that musket. So I don't know. It's just, it's, I'm always, I, I guess I'm really drawn to kind of the, the smooth bore muskets, but yeah, I would say, especially the Northwest trade guns, those are just my favorite. Yeah. So trade guns, that is one that I have talked to several people now, and I don't have very much experience at all with trade guns, but I've talked to several people now and, and they have all said that uh, the trade gun is their favorite. And for pretty much the same reasons you did just the versatility oh that's great the ability i've talked to several people like uh one of the guys he uh bouchoued a rendezvous and had a, a stage where uh you had to it was a trade gun stage and you had to find a rock that fit and use a rock in your trade gun and that sounds like just absolutely amazing and fun and uh yeah you know just the versatility of it all you know yeah oh absolutely so cool. Um, so what about other hobbies? Um, I know that we've had conversations about, uh, some of the medical stuff that you're interested in. Um, so besides like muzzle loading and all that, what else do you like to do? Sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So as you can guess, uh, I do a lot of camping. Um, and you know, I do a lot of family camping. I have four kids and, uh, my wife and I are big campers and road trippers. So we do, you know, travel trailer stuff, uh, we always joke our, our favorite pastime is leaving our woods to go into other people's woods. Um, <laughs> cause you know, that's <laughs> really kind of, and, and, and I guess like that plus like going to historical sites is probably what our, what our kids are stuck dealing with. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, camping outdoor stuff, uh, love military surplus. You know, you've seen that from the Instagram. Um, I really enjoy, uh, when it comes to military surplus, kind of the, post-World War II up until late 70s kind of time period, so kind of that Cold War era, um, the Brush Fire War time or Bush War time, I think some have heard that referred to. Yeah. Uh, so that's really good. Um, I grew up with, uh, you know, parents that were really into antiquing and antiques, and so and my mom uh, actually runs an antique store, so I enjoy, you know, we like to go on road trips and, and go, we call it treasure hunting, you know, which a lot of the times what I'm looking for is, surplus stuff and black powder stuff and that kind of thing so that's always mm -hmm. that's always been really fun um my wife and i are uh, big homesteaders so we live on acreage where we have you know chickens goats gardens all that kind of stuff and so mm -hmm. that's kind of we call that our our farmer nerd hobby um <laughs> where we just you know we're just outside a lot i mean we really uh probably spend as much time outdoors as as, uh, as inside and um yeah you, t you touched on uh the um you know, the medical stuff. So when I, uh, was a, uh, did, did all the backpacking stuff in college, some of the uh, older kids who were in the guide program, uh, wanted to go on to become professional guides. And so they got, um, their EMT license and, uh, wilderness first responder certifications so they could go work at, you know, Knowles or Outward Bound or one of those things. And I really kind of, at the time was thinking, you know, I love, I love guiding trips and I love doing that. Um, maybe I can make that my job, but more on the hunting side of it. So mm -hmm. not so much, you know, like becoming, you know, becoming a hunting guide or whatever. So I went through a phase where I was really into that and really focused on kind of making a career out of that. And, uh, part of that was getting my EMT, getting my wilderness first responder and doing that. And then what I, what I found out from that is that, um, I never really became a professional guide, never really kind of pursued that path but I really like doing volunteer EMS work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I always joke that, uh, I would have loved to have been a, uh, 
you know, full-time EMT just couldn't, just couldn't afford it because, uh, it's, it's definitely, um, it would be hard to raise four kids on that, um, on that salary, but I love doing that stuff. And so, um, I've done a lot of volunteer EMS stuff. Uh, I've done, um, I was on a search and rescue team for years Mm -hmm. and did, was a medic on a search and rescue team, did a lot of the, um, uh, you know, map and compass and GPS and not GPS, but I used to teach the map and compass course because I'm it's part of my kind of old ways, you know, older yeah. things that I'm into. And um, so I really enjoyed doing that. And then just, you know, I still do a lot of volunteer stuff. In fact, most, uh, most events I go to, um, I'm usually the designated medic as well there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been something where it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's never been something that I've, uh, considered doing full time, but I just enjoy it so much. You know, I've stopped at accidents, helped people, different places I've been to where I kind of feel like it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm happy to have those skills and that background and be able to help people when I can. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's been something that, you know, and again, you kind of, you were kind of touching on this earlier. I was kind of chuckling. That's a very equipment intensive thing to do. Yeah. And, and I, and I'd be lying if all the cool medical kits and, you know, crash bags and all that kind of stuff weren't also partially part of the reason it got me into that because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, big fan of uh, that type of equipment as well too. And doing that and just kind of taking that to the next level, learning, uh, learning how all those things work, um, keeping all my certifications up to date so that I do have the ability to continue to volunteer and do that. So that's, that's been another thing I've been really focused on as well too. Yeah. And I think um, that's a really interesting way that you can, uh, that you can just help people. And I think helping people is something that I've always strived to do. And that's something I try to make that a, a huge piece of our marketing is that my entire goal is like, you know, we're, we're a muzzleloader company, we're a business, we're trying to, you know, keep the lights on or whatever. But the majority of what I do is, is from a desire to help people. And uh, as you and I kind of talked about in our previous conversation, uh, I've always had a a huge interest in that uh, EMS type stuff because um, one, you know, it's another gear thing because I absolutely love gear and having, you know, gear and preparedness and all that kind of stuff. But two, that's a way that you can, you can meet somebody when they're having their worst possible day and help them in a very real and tangible physical way. Um, and I think I can imagine that that was just really rewarding. No, I, I mean, absolutely right. Like, I think, you know, when we talked before, we talked about the, the golden hour, right? And the golden hour is the first hour after somebody has a severe, Ill, you know, severe illness, injury, whatever, from the time they have that trauma till they get to, till they get into the operating table. That's the most important hour of their, of their life, basically. Mm-hmm. And if you can be the person that can stabilize and help that person until professional help goes, because remember, you know, we, we kind of live in a neat, interesting world where uh, you can be on the most remote place in America and a helicopter can still get you in four hours, mm-hmm. right? But it still is that time between when the person gets the injury or the accident or has a heart attack or whatever and the actual EMS arrives that really makes a huge difference mm-hmm. because if it takes the e, you know, if it takes EMS 10 minutes to get somewhere and that person's just been laying there or it takes them 10 minutes to get somewhere and you've been doing CPR on them in the meantime, that outcome is hundred percent different 
from, you know, from the CPR or not the CPR. And it's one of those things that it's like, it's great to know those skills because not only can you help other people, but there's a good chance the person that you're going to help is going to be somebody in your family. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that I've never, I've never wanted to be the kind of person who, when a crisis happens, I'm, I'm saying, Oh, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Like I've always been the one that like runs towards the fire, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that, um, if, if more people knew or had those skills, it would be incredible what we could do to help people who are in need. And like you said, at their worst time, mm-hmm. um, I remember I was at, uh, like a market days in Texas and somebody collapsed and, um, my wife came, my wife came running over and she didn't see me. I was, I was off to the side and she was like, we need a doctor. We need a doctor. You know, is anybody a doctor? And of course I stuck my head. I was like, Oh, why has it got to be a doctor? Like an EMT can't help. Yeah. She's like, shut up and come help this guy. <laughs> and, and so we were able to revive this guy. Um, and I, and I think he just had a heat emergency, like just got too hot, you know, mm-hmm. passed out, that kind of thing. Um, but for that person, like being there and being able to comfort that person, being able to say, okay, you know, I think this is what the situation is and get them stabilized before EMS came there. That was probably a much better outcome versus the guys laying on the ground and they call EMS and everybody just kind of looks dumbfounded at each other. Like, you know, what can we do to help this person? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely a calling, I would say. And it's something that I'd always, I always encourage anyone who feels compelled to do that should do it because mm-hmm. there's just so much good you can do knowing that. And I always tell people too, I want other people to know how to do it. So if I'm the one that falls out, they can help me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Well, um, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Do you have anything you wanted to share before we close up here? Sure. Yeah. The only, the only other thing I wanted to, I wanted to touch on that I thought would be, I thought it would be neat to talk about is, um, and this kind of falls under the, um, the category of like what you can do to, to help, you know, grow the hobby and grow the interest. Um, you know, my kids are, my kids are homeschooled. We're in, mm-hmm. we're in a very, you know, a very great community here where we have like great community resources and a really good co-op. And um, one of the things that the dads and I have done is put together a program we call the Green River Boys. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Green River Boys is basically, uh, it's a, it's kind of like a scouts alternative, not, you know, nothing against the scouts or whatever. That's, you know, that's definitely the, the great thing for a lot of people. But what we wanted to do was focus on um, getting, uh, getting kids into a really skills intensive program to teach them mountain man skills, uh, get them into things like, you know, shooting black powder guns, uh, throwing yeah. knives, throwing tomahawks, making shelters. And um, that's been another thing that we've really worked on to try to like uh, increase, you know, interest in history, increase interest in muzzleloaders. And, and that's just been, it's been great. It's been well received by the kids and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, just um, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, we did a really intensive class on first aid, which mm-hmm. was great. Um, one of the dads is a paramedic. So he and I, uh, taught the class on first aid, you know, showing kids what to do and, you know, basically for like campfire related emergencies and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, that's been, um, another program we've been really excited about to try to just get, just get the word out, get more people interested in the hobby and, and really help build up that next generation so that there's somebody that, um, can carry the torch when, uh, when we're ready to hand it off. Yeah, I think pa- passing on what you know is very important because if you don't pass on what 
if you do pass on what you know, it's like a piece of you, you know, gets to live on in the next generation. If you don't pass on what you know, your passions, the things you love, that it dies with you and no one else gets to experience that. And that's a similar thing with like conservation. And that's uh, one of the reasons I really love hunting is I love conservation and I love that hunting plays a role in that and that the things that we get, we get to participate in the continuation of something that I'm passionate about that we can pass on to the next generation so that when they grow up, absolutely, they'll actually be able to see an elk, you know, they'll be able to see a, yeah. a bear and yeah. know what those animals look like and experience how, how amazing it is to be in the outdoors. And so, um, I, yeah, I just really want to echo what you said and just make sure that our listeners, you know, pass on what you know, pass on the things that you've learned to, whether it's your kids or somebody else's kids or whoever is interested, Absolutely. whoever's willing to listen, you know, yeah. um, just spread that, spread that information around. So, um, also if you guys are listening to this, definitely go on Instagram and follow the Orion foundation. Um, and is it, it's Orion or the Orion? I can't remember the Orion, the Orion foundation. Um, excellent content, lots of very interesting stuff, uh, from rendezvous, black powders. It is all very, uh, interesting with regard to the blend with, uh, just, um, uh, military surplus and all that kind of stuff. Also, Paul's an incredible guy. And so definitely check him out and support his, uh, his Instagram page. And if you guys enjoyed listening to this podcast, uh, make sure that you leave a review if you're just listening to it, or if you're watching it on YouTube, you can, uh, comment, like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications whenever we post other videos. We post uh, usually multiple videos a week on muzzleloading, how-to videos, reviews, all that kind of stuff. So make sure to give us some support because uh, we're trying to pass on uh, what we're passionate about as well. And uh, your guys' support really helps make that possible. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much again for joining us on today's episode. Yeah, thank you so much, Darren. I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, had had a great time and look forward to talking again some other time. Me too. Me too. We'll have you back on for sure. So uh, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you in the next one.